Welcome to Seven Hills Fellowship. My name is Brian Pierce. Um, my wife and I moved uh, here to Rome uh, over 11 years ago now to start um, this little church. And so God has really been faithful to us. And so I'm just thankful and really feel privileged to stand in front of you this morning. Uh, we are actually starting a series um, over the course of the next month called Truth in Art. And uh, we've actually done three other of these series over the years. Um, We've done series where we looked at, um, at movies, we've done series where we looked at um, music, and we've done series where we looked at uh, works of literature. The theme of this series is actually painters, and so we're looking at various painters. And, uh, and so even as I say that, probably some of you are thinking like, oh, wow, what are, we, what are we doing? Like, how can that possibly sort of be about God or about Jesus or about Scripture? We'll get there in a minute. Now, before we begin and start this uh, series of Truth and Art, before I jump into it, let me just say this. I am definitely not an art critic. Uh, I not only was not an art major in college, but I never took an art class. In fact, um, I read one art book ever, and it was after Kristen and I started dating, and uh, she was interested in art, so I literally borrowed an art book from a friend so that I could pretend like I knew something about art that I could, so I could impress her and not look like a Neanderthal, right? So that's about what I know about art. Now, I will say this. Some people have said, and I don't want to brag or anything, but some people have said that I did have amazing artistic talent when I was child, a child. And so let me show you some of my artwork really quickly. Let's, the first one I call the fire truck. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell, but the lines and the perspective are really unparalleled in there. Okay, whatever. Anyway, next one. I also, I did a lot of animal drawings. So there's Aslan the lion. Again, masterpiece, clearly. And then also, the next one is the rainbow dragon, which is fantastic as well. So, so before you actually think, I'm, I can't, what's that? I did write my name, except for that's not me. I took all these off the internet. I don't know where those came from. It was, I didn't have enough time to like ask my parents to send me some, so those are all made up. I totally apologize. Anyway, but you get the point. It's kind of fun. Anyway, point is, uh, again, some of you are asking, why are we talking about this idea of art and artists and painters in church, right? Shouldn't we be talking about God? Shouldn't we be talking about Jesus? And the answer in uh, sort of the long way around is, of course, we should. Um, but what I would say is that all art ultimately points us back to God, right? That's where it leads us. Now, what's interesting is sometimes it leads us there positively, but sometimes it leads us there negatively as well. But ultimately, all art is making truth claims, and all truth claims are rooted in something or someone who is transcendent. Here's what Francis Schaeffer had to say about art in his little book called Art and the Bible. You're probably going to hear me or Bob reference this a little bit in the next couple of weeks. He says this, No great artist functions on the level of art for art's sake alone. The artist makes a body of work, and this body of work shows his worldview. When we see a collection of an artist's paintings or a series of a poet's poems or a number of a novelist's novels, both the outline and some of the details of the artist's conception of life shine through. In other words, again, what art does is it points us to something higher, something transcendent. And it's precisely because of this particular view of the world that the artist points us back to God. Now, before we jump into this particular artist today, let me take a moment. Let's open us up in prayer. Father, I pray that as we um, take a look at various artists, um, Father, I pray that our ultimate goal wouldn't be in seeing their art, but rather that we would see you through their art, Father. I pray that this would be a series and this would be a sermon where ultimately uh, we hear about who you are and, uh, and what you've done for us in your son Jesus, and that would then lead us 
to live lives of worship, Father. I pray that you would give us the ability to, uh, to be critical in the way that we view our culture and the way that we view art. But ultimately, Father, let us always come back to you. Pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, rather than simply introducing the artist to you today that we're going to start with, I'm actually going to show a couple paintings of this artist. And uh, if you think you know the artist, um, then go ahead and just shout it out and we'll, um, we'll, we'll kind of keep moving. Who said something? Van Gogh Close. Let's go to the next one that's super dark. It's kind of hard to see. Also super dark, also hard to see. Maybe a little more clue. Picasso, that's right. Okay, so we're talking about Picasso. So we got a picture of Picasso up here. That's called The Crying Woman. So what's interesting is, you know, the way that we plan sermon series out here at Seven Hills is we sit down at the big stone table out there, and we start about a year out, and we kind of go, all right, this is going to be our series for, you know, September. This is going to be our series for whatever. And so you jump into these series before you actually, you know, sort of have all the details lined up. And so I chose to do Picasso before I really knew that much about him. Now, very quickly, let me just say this, that Picasso was born in Spain, Pablo Picasso, but then um, as a child or as a young adult, he moved to Paris, and he mostly lived around Paris for his adult life for most of the 20th century. Those of you who know anything about Picasso know that he was trained classically, so he was actually technically a a very excellent painter. You know that uh, there were various various periods of his artwork. There was the blue period, which was typically sort of morose and sad, an art critic who uh, first saw his art around Paris basically called Picasso um, a young and sad god, was what he had to say. Then there was the red period, and the red period was red and, and a little more hopeful, or the rose period, because uh, it was sort of, it corresponded with his first um, real love. And then obviously what we know um, Picasso most of all for is a particular type of art called cubism, all right? And so those of you who guys um, are familiar with cubism, you know that what cubism essentially is is that it's this way of um, deconstructing or reducing or reframing a particular subject in a way that sometimes almost lends itself to the grotesque. Um, In fact, his very first cubist painting, he showed to a group of thinkers and artists' friends, and when he showed it to them, it was actually a piece uh, piece of art called The Young Ladies of Avignon, which was taken from a brothel or basically sort of supposed to represent a brothel in Barcelona. But in it, his friends were shocked, not because of the the content of the painting, but rather the style of the painting, because it dehumanized them, it deconstructed them. And so all of his artistic friends, who were not exactly conservative thinkers, were shocked and they were offended by this new style of painting. Now, what's interesting is if we go back to Francis Schaeffer and what he had to say about art, what we know is that art ultimately, and the artist's work over an era, sort of a time period, begins to reveal something about that artist's worldview. What's interesting about Picasso is that Picasso uh, was uh, very much an atheist. He did not believe in the existence of God. He did not believe in the existence of anything transcendent. And as he wrestled with sort of the philosophical implications of what that meant, he lived his life in accordance with the absence of God, with the absence of transcendental values. And what happened was that ultimately he became concerned primarily about power, right, and exhibiting that power over others until they were deconstructed, right? Until they were reduced and broken apart. Listen to a quote by Ariana Huffington in The Atlantic. Um, The title of her article is called Picasso, Creator and Destroyer, an apt title. Here's what she has to say. Nietzsche's book, Will to Power, struck an especially powerful chord in Picasso's heart. 
Power was the only value set up by Nietzsche to take the place of the transcendent values that had lost their meaning for modern man. And Picasso found that Nietzsche's philosophy, philosophy admirably suited his own needs and dreams of power. Ultimately, what drove Picasso more than anything in his art, more than his dominion and reduction of other human beings, was this need to have power. And over the course of his life, you can look at his art and you can see that one of the primary places and ways that that need and desire for power was in his relationship with women. Here's another quote from Creator and Destroyer. It says this, Picasso painted one of his most brutal and vengeful images of womanhood. Dora, this was one of his many, many mistresses, as the nude dressing her hair, the brutality was no less present in his life, in his real life. So it was present in the art, but it was present in his life because it was present in his philosophy. He often beat Dora, and there were many times when he left her lying unconscious on the floor. The transformation of the princess into a toad and of sensuality into horror was complete. And in the dog-faced portraits he painted of Dora, he completed the transformation of woman into servile animal. More than two-thirds of his work during 1939 and 1940 consisted of deformed women, their faces and bodies flayed with fury. His hatred of a specific woman seemed to have become a deep and universal hatred of all women. Now, I don't have time to reference story after story after story after artwork after artwork after artwork. But his life, this was a theme of power over females. He had wives and mistresses, mistresses and mistresses, countless liaisons with different women. And the theme of all of those relationships was that he used his power ultimately to destroy them. And again, I could tell you story after story. In fact, it was hard for me to read all these biographies and various sort of write-ups on Picasso's life because I became really, frankly, very disgusted with him as a human being because he was so brutal and so vengeful in his desire to express power over not just women, but over others as well, even his children. Sad, sad stories. Right, ultimately, he used his power to destroy and to deconstruct. Now, that's what we see in his art, right? So when you look at his art, it's not all about that, but when you look at the corpus of it, you see that that's the result of his power unfettered by the transcendent, is that he deconstructed, he broke apart. The question, I think, for us this morning is how do we use our power, right? How do we use our power? Each of us is uh, laden with power. We're created in the image of God. Therefore, we have agency. We have ability. How do we use our power as friends? How do we use our power as bosses? How do we use our power as husbands or wives or as parents? How do we use that power? Do we use it for good? Do we use it for evil? There's a, a Christian counselor named Larry Crabb, and Larry Crabb has written a book called Understanding Who You Are, What Relationships Tell You About Yourself. And in this book, he has this to say. He's writing a chapter, and in this chapter, he's writing about dignity. In other words, we're created in the image of God, and therefore we have dignity. Everyone has dignity. But also depravity, right? And Adam all fell, and the result of that falling is that now our hearts are twisted, right? And we're sinful, and we're broken. Therefore, we have dignity and depravity. Here's what he says, Larry Crabb, on depravity. He says this, to be depraved means so much more than the fact that we sometimes do bad things, right? Um, you're a sinner not simply because of what you do, but more deeply because of who you are. Here's what he goes on to say. Beneath our choices, including the good ones, we are driven by a self-centered energy that disguises itself as healthy or at least justified and therefore invites others to encourage it. In other words, we develop a, a false self 
And the intention of that false self is to serve ourselves selfishly. And so other people in our world, in our depravity, become pawns to help us avoid the things we want to avoid and to get the things that we desire. He goes on to say that sin is that selfish determination to preserve my own soul at any cost, right? It seems so much a part of who I am as my lungs are a part of my body. In other words, what Larry Crabb is saying here is he's saying the sort of the defining characteristic of us as human beings or characteristics of us as human beings is that we have dignity because we're created in God's image and therefore we have power, but we also have depravity. We're more broken than we think we are. And that fundamentally what he's saying here is that we use that power ultimately to gain things in life, to be who we want to be, to get what we want to get. We use our power selfishly. Now, lest you think that's just the perspective of someone who is a Christian psychologist, here uh, I'm going to tell you a quick story about a man named Jordan Peterson who was a a former uh, psychology professor at the University of Harvard, and he highlighted the same thing. So he he claims to be a Christian, but it's a very different type of Christian than we would be in some respects. But he would basically say this, and I heard a a talk where he gave this, uh, he sort of talked about this concept. And he said, part of what I realized as I was sort of finishing my doctoral work in psychology is that he realized that the vast majority of who I was, the vast majority of how I operated in relationships was purely and solely to use other people for my own ends. Now, he basically said, I was a relatively good guy. And so the way that that manifested itself was mostly in ways that seemed socially acceptable, but ultimately I was using my power and my influence in order that I might gain even at the expense of other people. And he said, I went through this process of trying to sort of cut everything out of my language and cut everything out of my thought that was coming from this desire to control other people. And he said, when I was left, he said, I was left with 5%. In other words, he said, I was left with this tiny sliver of me, the real me, that wasn't actually trying to use and abuse other people via my power, right? And so let me just say this this morning. If we're honest with ourselves, we must admit that apart from God... We use our power to protect and promote ourselves at all costs, even at the expense of others. Now, that's super heavy. I don't have time to unpack that today. All I have time to do is to point you to Picasso and say that's what unfettered uh, power looks like in its expression. So that's Picasso. That's us, right? We use our power to deconstruct. We use our power to control, to manipulate other people for our own ends. But what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Let me jump into John chapter 10. This is a passage that you guys are all, most of you are probably pretty familiar with. Even culturally, there's sort of a remembrance of the story, but it's where Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. And so let's start in verse one. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, he's talking to the religious leaders of the day who he's been going back and forth with and arguing with. He says this, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. And so a sheep pen was this circular structure made of sticks or maybe made of rocks. And uh, they were high enough to keep the predators out but the sheep in. And anyone, he's saying here, uh, not entering through the gate had bad intentions. goes on to say in verse 2, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. In other words, he has nothing to hide, right? Whereas the thieves who sneak in have bad intentions, the shepherd has only good intentions, for the sheep. Verse 3. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep out by name 
and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, that's because several flocks would have been in one pen together, he would have called them out. He goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. And so shepherding in the ancient Near East was very shepherding than say, you know, Northern Europe. In Northern Europe, they use sheepdogs to nip at the, the feet of the sheep to drive them in the appropriate direction. But in the ancient Near East, shepherds don't walk behind their sheep and they don't use sheepdogs. Rather, they walk in front of their sheep and they lead them and they call them by name and they follow the shepherd because they know the shepherd always takes them to water and to food and to safety. They know that they can trust him. They know his voice because he calls them by name. Verse 5. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. They would very clearly understand later what he was telling them, and they would try to kill him for it. Verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. There was no door, no fixed gate on the sheep of these sheep pens. Rather, the shepherds would lay their bodies across the entrance and exit to the sheep pen so that the sheep couldn't get out and uh, no one that, that wanted to harm them could get in. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So what do we see in this passage? What, do, what is Jesus telling us about power? Uh, what does he tell us about, uh, about himself? Well, the first thing I think we see in this passage is that you have a real enemy who uses his power to harm you. You have a real enemy who uses his power in order to to deconstruct you, to destroy you, to reduce you, right? Let's read a couple of these verses that talk about these enemies. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way as a thief and a robber, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now, in this metaphor, and it's really an extended and mixed metaphor, Jesus speaks of thieves and robbers and wolves. And in this context, Jesus is talking Precisely about the Pharisees, right? These are, again, the religious people of the day. They were the pastors of the day, like me. And uh, they were primarily concerned with the preservation of their influence. They were concerned with the preservation of their power and their position, not unlike Picasso, right? But the question is, were the Pharisees the real enemy that Jesus is talking about here? In John eight forty four, we know that Jesus has already confronted them And he's confronted what truly lies behind their motivation. Here's what he says in verse 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Right? So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying in the same way that Picasso used his power to use, to reduce, to deconstruct those closest to him, so to Satan and you Pharisees, what you seek to do is to, is, to be, is to tear others apart, right? That's what Satan desires, is to tear you apart, to deconstruct you, to make you less human, and to make you less divine. You have a real enemy who is using his power to tear you apart, right? 
That's what sin is. Sin ultimately leads to chaos. Sin leads to loneliness. Sin leads to brokenness. Sin leads to destruction, deconstruction, right? It's what Satan desires, and it's exactly the thing that Jesus is fighting against. So if we have a real enemy who uses his power to deconstruct us, to harm us, what about Jesus? What do we see about him in this passage? What we see about Jesus in this passage is this, that he uses his power to sacrifice himself for us that we might flourish, right? Picasso used his power to sacrifice others that he might flourish. Jesus uses his power to sacrifice himself for us that we might flourish. Listen to these verses. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. That's a picture of flourishing. They'll be well-fed, right? They'll be nourished. They'll drink. The thief comes in only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Again, it's a picture of flourishing. Jesus is saying, I have come to lead you to fullness of life, to human flourishing. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, right? Jesus came in order to save us, to help us to flourish, to lay down his life for us, to protect us. That's what he uses his power for. In the summer of 2013, um, the Johnson family was hiking in a place called Buena Vista, Colorado. Some of you guys have been there before to Young Life Camp. And uh, they were walking up the side of uh, one of the mountains in that mountain range there. And as they were um, walking up this mountain range, uh, there was a rock slide. And uh, the rock slide was about the size of a football field. It broke over the top of them. There had been some rains. And uh, when it broke, um, the rock slide just came down the side of the hill and it covered the entire family. There were some hikers nearby that saw the rock slide fall, and so they immediately called, you know, rescue people to come up, and the rescue people covered the mountainside. And uh, when they got there, what they saw was just this, you know, massive field of this rock slide, and, uh, and they saw, you know, bodies where these rocks, some of which were the size of boulders, had crushed people. And it appeared initially that no one had survived. And as they searched through the rubble, they heard a distant and muffled scream, Running to the spot of where they thought they heard the scream, they began moving rocks and lifting um, boulders as they could. And underneath a pile of rocks, they found a 13-year-old girl. Her name was Gracie Johnson. But she was underneath her father's body. She later... When she was interviewed, they interviewed her and they said, what happened? And and she said, when the rock slide began, my dad shoved me down on the ground behind a rock and then he threw his body on top of me. So there's this picture of this father saying, whatever it takes, I'm going to put myself between you and the thing that threatens to destroy you, the thing that threatens to harm you. And he laid down his life for his daughter, right? He used his power to sacrifice himself so that his daughter might live. Here in John chapter 10, we see Jesus describing the same thing. He stood between us and our enemy, even though he knew that it would cost him his life. Now, again, back to Picasso, contrast this with him, contrast this with what we see in his art and this expression of power that ultimately led to destruction, right? 
um, and to, to sort of fragmenting and chaos, right? There's any number of different stories of how he used his power. There's one story where in World War II they were on food rations and people were literally starving across Europe in, uh, in occupied France. And there's one story that was told that um, one of his mistresses who had had a child by him, they were starving and they came to Picasso's home. He had refused to fight in the war and in World War I as well. And uh, he welcomed them into their home, and, and they said, we're, we're starving, we need food. And uh, he showed them a pantry that was actually the size of a room, and it was filled all, almost to the ceiling with all this different type of contraband and food. But when they came and they said, can you give us some food, we're starving, he had his servants kick them out, his mistress and his child, out of their home, right? Again, he sacrificed them so that he could flourish over and over again, we see that in his art and in his life, that he sacrificed those he loved, that he might thrive, that he might flourish. Jesus sacrificed himself that we might flourish, that we might live. As we look around the room this morning, you're going to see tables. And on these tables, um, on the right-hand side of the room, there's bread and wine. On the left-hand side of the room, there's bread and grape juice. But what these tables remind us of is that Jesus laid down his life for us, Right? that Jesus laid down his life that we might live in order to stand between us and our greatest enemies, sin and death and the evil one, but also the wrath of God. And Jesus says, I'll take it all upon me. And so in this meal, what we are remembering is that Jesus died, that he used his power to sacrifice himself for us, that we might be declared righteous before God, that we might be set free, that we might flourish. And so what I'll simply ask you to do this morning is to sit there for a moment and think about the implication of the fact that Jesus sacrificed himself for you, that you might live, that you might flourish. And what I would encourage you to do is before you take this bread and you dip it into wine or dip it into grape juice, that you would be forced um, to remember whether or not you believe that your safety and that your security and that your standing before God is in your own righteousness or rather is in the righteous life and death and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf, because that's what this meal is for. The only person that should not come to this meal today is someone who is still trusting in their righteousness, in their goodness, their absence of badness. This is only for people who have despaired and who trust in Jesus alone. Let me read now the words of institution of the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for a picture um, of, uh, of your love for us. I thank you, Father, for a visceral reminder of the gospel that Jesus um, suffered, died, that his body was broken, that his blood was spilled. And because of our trust in his life and death and resurrection, we are safe. Father, we're safe from sin, we're safe from death, and we're safe even from the punishment that is rightfully ours. And so, Father, I pray that we would come to this table today, your table, 
and, uh, and that we would believe that we stand before you declared righteous, that we stand before you safe, that we stand before you beautiful in your eyes, regardless of our own record, because of the record of your son Jesus on our behalf. And so, Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray.